Hey there, dear listeners. Welcome to another edition of the Daydreamcast. I am here with my friend Murph. I am Murph. And I'm here with my friend Will. What up? Woo! Will in the house. It has been a long time, Will. You are, for the record, you are the first person that was ever like, hey, I'd love to guest on the show like three years ago. And I was like, yeah, 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 sometime. And then I don't know if it was Pablo's. I'm going to throw him under the bus because he's not here anymore. But like, it just never happened. And then I was like, no, it's happening. Because I saw you at PAX East. It's true. We had a good time. Yeah, dude, it was fucking wild, wasn't it? And you got it like a lot done. Uh, you discuss your own PAX East games with your friend Brian on another cast, if you want to plug that right now. Yes, uh, Platformers Podcast. You can find it wherever you find your favorite podcast. I think we talked about 30 games at PAX. So that's so many. You were so busy. Every time I saw you, you were like sweating and tired. Well, it's we had appointments, man. I had to run across that's the just show the floor. convention experience. <laughs> yeah, uh, you had to make it. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself. What kind of games do you like? Uh man, I like just about everything. Um, it's funny because we're t- I'm I grew up uh on Nintendo games, so like Zelda, Mario, um, also uh, stuff like StarCraft, Warcraft. Um, lots of strategy titles, a lot of action games. Uh, so I play pretty much everything. Um, strategy, yeah. you know, basically whatever. Um, I personally, from my vibes, I would characterize you as you may disdain the title hardcore, at least in terms of you want mechanically rewarding and enriching gameplay and something at least intriguing. You know what I mean? Like for instance, in fighting games, you play fucking guilty gear. You, you, you've, you've evolved beyond the, the baby stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I am definitely about mechanics. I think, um, don't get me wrong. I love a good story. I love good music. I love good art design. I think all those things are integral to having a great game, but ultimately games are about play and one of the most important yeah. things that they do is let you interact. I think the game that is better at letting you interact is a more interesting use of the medium. I think that's totally fair. Um, do you want to get right into what you're playing? Yes. How interactive is Metroid Prime? Metroid Prime is actually pretty interactive. So this is this is fun because I, I had never played Metroid Prime prior to the remaster. Um, mm-hmm. Metroid was one of those things that I just kind of passed by ships in the night right like you'd see it and be like that looks cool and you never play it <laughs> so so this is your first metroid period right it's my i played super metroid a little bit but this is like the first one that i've sat down and like i'm gonna finish this um yeah yeah instead of like an hour and then it's like i think i'm gonna drop this this is the one you're like no i'm committing yeah it's, the funny thing about metroid and i think the reason that it's it's hard for me to finish them is because they're very like kind of open go do the thing games right like figure out what to do and uh my problem is because i work in games media a lot of my time is like oh we need a like a dragon ishin review and then we need guides for like every single sub story all right well that's gonna take like two weeks right and all i'm gonna do for those two weeks is play ishin um mm-hmm. so then i go back to metroid and i'm like i don't remember what i'm doing and then i have to restart the game and then you know that was what happened with super metroid are you um, saying that game journalists may have a different perspective on marathoning games than your average gamer? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, Golly gee. <laughs> I'm very grateful when I don't have to do that. Um, so how I play games in my free time is a lot more loose and, and kind of like just whatever I'm feeling at the moment. So, But Prime, Prime is interesting because it caught my attention immediately. Like I was like, you know what? 
Prime Remaster, let's finally do this. Like, everybody loves this game. And I gotta tell you, I love this game. Um, there you go. You know, it's crazy. Good taste. Yeah, it's crazy because I think uh, this year especially, we're seeing a lot of like, remakes and remasters and, and re-releases for games from, like, the 2000 to, like, 08 period. That kind year of, of the GameCube. Lots of GameCube games, lots of GBA games. Um, early, early, like, uh Gen 7 games, like, from the 360 PS3 era. So, I think that's Gen 7, right? I can never yes. keep it straight. Uh, PS3, <laughs> Xbox 360 is Gen 7. Yeah, I can never... It, whenever you count the numbers, it feels to me like when a mom is like, oh, my baby is 39 months old. It's like, okay, well, I think we're beyond <laughs> this point. Right, like, the, the numbers are too big. And I, my thing is, I always, like, you know, Gen 1 for me would be like, it's the mess, right? But, like, nah, it's the Atari. Um... So Prime is interesting because it is very much like a go-do-what-you-want-to-do game, but it also kind of like, if it feels that you're not on the right track, it'll be like, hey, hey, there's <laughs> something over here. You really should go over here. Uh, but what's cool about it is that I would not, having played a little bit of Super Metroid and a little bit of a couple of the other 2D games, just, you know, try them out, like Fusion, um... I would not expect what that series does to work in a 3D environment because a lot of it is like wall bouncing, like let's go roll through this area. It's the morph ball, right? Like, and Prime Absolutely. is like, hey, you can still do that. But by opening it up to a 3D environment, we've actually made things a little bit simpler. Like the jumping stuff that you can do in the 2D games is not there, but also more complex because you have things that can move around in 3D. You know, you can rotate rooms, you can do more complicated 3d platforming and and like the joy of it for me has been the exploration of like huh that's cool absolutely how do i get over there mm-hmm. i can't get I, over I think one of the <laughs> i think one of the big things especially in contrast between prime and the 2d stuff is also combat i think there's a good like amount of stiffness and movement to samus in 2d but in in prime you're always considering space and it's such a unique consideration of space, especially not only in comparison to Metroid, but in comparison to first-person shooters. They don't make first-person shooters like Metroid Prime. You know what I'm saying? So then it's just a, like a breath of fresh air whenever I play it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting because, you know, Samus can dash. Like, she could dodge. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you play, like, a more traditional FPS, a lot of the time that's not there. Like, you can stray, but... yeah. Unless you're playing Quake, you probably don't have the speed or the momentum to do things like that. So Prime is cool because Samus is tanky enough that you can just sit there and, like, absorb things from stuff that isn't bosses and be like, it's fine. Like, I'm a superhero. Like, you can hit me. It doesn't matter. But it's really interesting because you can also just be like, hey, I recognize that attack animation. You're going to do this. Let me dodge. And having that ability to move around in the 3D space and work with these enemies that are very mobile and very fast... And with all the tools that Samus has, like, oh, I can freeze this one, right? Or I can do this, or I have to approach this one this way. Or when I unlock the x-ray visor, I can see these ghosts when they're moving. It, it's, con- it's, it's Prime is not really a combat game in its combat. It's a puzzle. It's a big yeah, puzzle. I agree. Like, yep. here's the enemy. This is what they're good at. Here's the room that you're in, right? Which changes the way that you approach it. In a big open area, you have a lot more freedom than if you're on, like, a catwalk. Mm-hmm. solve the puzzle and it's really interesting because you repeat a lot of the same encounters but just by changing the space in which the encounter takes place 
it becomes a lot. It more matters so much. Yeah, it, it's more than yep. almost any game, maybe outside of honestly, maybe outside of like the way Halo works with this encounters because of the way the AI is. Like having a multi level mm-hmm. thing is way different than a flat plane. And the same thing. In yeah, Halo. yeah. Um, especially like I, I think, I think like there are times in other first person shooters, like you'll see the hunters in Halo with the shield. That's the one with the shield, right? The hunters. That's what they call them. Mm-hmm. I don't the remember the Halo enemies. Yeah, the yeah the giant shield or like uh fucking what was the other one or in like Doom they have the pinkies or at least the new Doom Eternals where it's like the pinky is vulnerable in the back. There's a lot of especially in Metroid vulnerable in the back or separate vulnerabilities. Um, and you're right, it's like you can tank it, you can like mindlessly fight, but also it totally rewards you from mastering those mechanics. In a and it's just super satisfying. I was also gonna say in that 3D sense. For me, you know, a lot of times people talk about immersion. Um, it's For me, it's hard to do a 2D horizontal, you know, left to right game in an immersive way. Metroid sometimes does it really well. But for Prime, it being first person and it having really excellent sound design and just little touches atmospherically totally makes it work for me. For me, like Prime is just like what I want in a Metroid. And there's so much detail in just, you know, the way that her visor is set up, the way that the camera changes when you go into the morph ball, the way that the game uses a cinematic camera when you are in the morph ball to let you see the environment. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's something that we've kind of gotten away from since then is, is like camera use has become very standardized, right? Like, If you're in a first-person game, it's going to be first-person. You might have a little HUD, but you're probably not going to have the detail on the visor that Samus does. And if you're in a third-person game, it's Resident Evil 4 style over the shoulder, right? So having a game that released kind of around the time before everybody looked at at Resident Evil 4 and before everybody kind of looked at the way Halo did a a UI or Call of Duty did a UI for a first-person shooter and said, that's what we're going to do. And just kind of was allowed to experiment with that and the way that it showed the player how the world worked is really interesting no i totally get it yep um murph any thoughts have you played metroid prime murph? yeah I, I played it uh kind of after the gamecube's time when i learned you could play gamecube games on the wii uh i always feel like metroid prime i like it i never finished it because i got to the point where it's like all right backtrack through every area and find like the 12 secret keys to unlock the area to the final boss and i was like i've had my fill yeah. um i think metroid prime does have like a very good atmosphere a very oppressive feeling atmosphere almost from like the moment go like you touch down on talon 4 and it's like okay this is a hostile environment this is practically like a survival horror and you just kind of like yeah, truck they- through it i always liked the scanning and the different visors yeah. Just, like, different ways of looking at the world is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and to talk about that camera shift real quick, you're right in that that because it's been standardized, um, they ignore function a lot. So, like, when you see the morph ball and the zoom out, it it is able to utilize space, especially once you get the spider uh, upgrade and you can climb up walls with it. Oh my gosh, that is so much fun. And then it enables a verticality to the 3D world that is just super awesome. And the camera demands that, right? And in other games nowadays, they they wouldn't think about function. And instead, they would just think about what's convenient or, you know, just go back to what they feel comfortable with. 
and this game is very this game was like a huge risk like on oh, yeah. all accounts as a as like a as retro studios as a nintendo title as a metroid first person shooter like this game is just risks on top of risks and it pays off in spades and it's it's interesting because all that stuff is there but but it's really good at balancing a lot of things at once in kind of a way that like very few studios or publishers are good at like Capcom is good at this Blizzard was good at this back you know when they were like at the height of their powers Nintendo has always been good at this where it gives you all the information you need while also managing to evoke a tone an atmosphere a sense of being in a physical space and how you navigate that physical space and you are seeing what you need to see you have all the information um mm-hmm. you know Murph you talked about like it's kind of a survival horror game it is it has that very like oppressive, very like tense atmosphere where you're like, I don't know what's in the next room. Some of this stuff is scary. I don't know how to fight it necessarily the first time I see it. Yeah. But you also just don't have a lot of information to like what's going on. Like you see codex entries that are like uh, something called Phazon showed up and it killed everyone, but you don't really have like wrapping your mind about what Phazon is and your perception of it evolving as you progress through the areas. And in the same way, your understanding of the environment and how the environment works together and how the enemies are, and it it captures all that, but it's also like a very wondrous game. Like you go into an area and you're like, wow, this is really cool. And part of that, I think, is the music. Just, Just everything about it feels like, I don't know, the best games are puzzle boxes. And that they constantly surprise you, and they ask you to pay attention. And Prime does that all the time. Because it's, it's interactive, it's manual, as we discussed earlier. In terms, of, in terms of the puzzle box thing, we may want to bookmark that for our game of the week. Um, and I think when, when you said it, there are a lot of parallels between Metroid and Zelda and how they operate, you know, you know in a dungeon-esque, you know, exploration emphasis. Um, and I think Zelda also has those problems typically, especially in like a 3D title where it's like, okay, I haven't played in two weeks. Where the fuck am I? Like Twilight <laughs> Princess. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but Metroid Prime does it pretty well. Um, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah, it is. It is great. And I guess if you're listening to this and you've never played Prime, like join me on the Metroid Prime is cool. Go pick up the remaster. It's on Switch. It's fantastic. Um, but it's been a joy, and it, it's it's rare, I think, when you go back to a game that people have been gassing up for years and years and years. You know, this is the pinnacle of, like, this series, or it's up there in that uh, discussion. It's upper echelon, like, it's one of the best games on this platform. And, you know, 20 years pass, and you're like, is it, though? And then you go play it, and they're like, no, you're, they were right. They were right. Oftentimes, you go back to it, and it's just like, like Resident Evil 4. It's like, okay, I'm living in a world Resident Evil 4 built. You know, so many games are Resident Evil 4 alikes. So playing Resident Evil 4 is just playing another one of those games in, a, in certain contexts. But Metroid Prime, there's not really any games like it other than other Metroid Prime games. Resident Evil 4 is still an S-tier, Murph. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I mean, that it, comparison didn't work. <laughs> it, I, I get what he's saying and that I agree with yeah. you, bro, that it is still it is still an amazing fantastic like the encounter design in that game. I could talk about Resident Evil 4 for three hours, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, but no, he's right in the in the sense that modern games learn so much from it, cribbed so much from it that when you go back to it, you're you take everything for granted is, I think, the way to say yeah. it. it's a victim of its own success. Yeah, you know, it's, it's going back to like like. PS1 JRPGs, right? You know, Final Fantasy VII, this big thing. You go back to it now and you're like, 
This game has been iterated on and copied and borrowed from so much that you can't really look at it. It feels cliche. Yeah, even though it is the originator of the cliches. It's it's wild. Mm -hmm. But Prime never has that problem because, like you said, there's nothing else like it. Uh, Is there anything else like the Titanfall 2 campaign, Murph? Okay. So, for years now, I have heard myth and rumor legends that the greatest uh, first-person shooter single-player campaign of all time exists, and it was squirreled away in Titanfall 2 from 2016. I'm here to say... I think Titanfall 2 is the best first-person shooter campaign I have ever played. Okay. All right. Go on. Tell me more. I, it just, it just fucking works, you know? It's like, it's like the feeling of playing, like, Halo for the first time, but, like, doubled because you can do wall jumps. Um, I think it just incredibly smart, well-done level design and combat like the first level is like a psychic obstacle course where it really lets you like get a feel for the movement and it adds like a timer to completing the obstacle course with a certain number of points so you really want to like grind it and then also that obstacle course lets you test all the guns which is something that like i don't know why i've never seen any other fps do that because sometimes you'll be playing like a halo game or something and you'll pick up a gun you've never used before and you're like oh this is kind of shit i want to go back to the gun i was using that i was used to uh beyond that the in the actual combat like being able to do like all these slides and uh wall running and things a lot of movement zipping around the battlefield but the guns also uh have very clear uh i don't really know what word to use like bullet tracer uh uh bullet trails so you can really clearly see your like the spread on your gun like what the recoil is doing to it it also means that you can tell from where people are shooting at you so enemies don't blend into the background like what happens in like cod games or even like recent halo so and also enemies have very clear silhouettes they're covered in like you know big bright lights so they always stick out you always know where they are and you always can see like a path to go to them like just and and the melee combat's also really fun when you punch a guy in this he stays punched he goes flying that's really satisfying and then just adding that all into very fantastically and really inventively done levels like every level's a banger and they're all distinct there's one where it's like you're the enemy forces are constructing like artificial cities on mass like a mass-produced factory to create artificial cities for combat scenarios and you're like underground watching them like piece together like different buildings and leg like legos and you're on that platform as it's like tilting and a house gets added and you have to like adjust as like the rooms rotating around you and you're still shooting guys and then uh the level i think it's called cause and effect is like effect very famous cause. effect and cause is a very famous level from this game where you get a like a time travel bracelet and you can switch between the present where this uh, science facility is all run down and destroyed and the past when it's in its prime so you can do things like uh, be in the present where the room's deserted and then switch to the past where it has a bunch of enemies in it and you can like 
switch to the present, walk behind them, switch to the past, shoot them all. And it, like, does so many interesting little combat scenarios with that. And that's just one level. That mechanic's only in that level, and they use it as much as they need to. It's just, uh, it's great. I love it. We we talked about before uh, last season when we talked about Half Life Two the importance of a first person shooter's campaign having variety. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it, it, it and it and it's a variety beyond the multiplayer segments because you never hear anybody talking about Titanfall 2's multiplayer. This stands on its own, and you know what I mean. I think that's so important to the game. Yeah, and you know what, like um. Each level ends in a boss fight, and they kind of have, like, a Borderlands-style introduction for the boss, where they, like, show up, and it zooms in on them with, like, their name displayed. And then those boss fights are always really interesting encounters, uh, because you're always doing them in the Titan, and you have to, like, mix and match your Titan loadout. Uh, It's, yeah, I think think this game, or this campaign, I didn't touch the multiplayer, admittedly, but I think this campaign very much deserves its reputation, and it just makes me you know, all the more matter that, uh, you know, it was basically launched to fail because, what, it was set up against the new Battlefield and so many other things, like, deliberately by EA to tank it. It, it is it is wild because, bro, you brought up Half-Life 2. And I think Titanfall 2, I, I am not quite as high on it as Murphy's. I think it is a great campaign, and I think Affecting Cause is an all-timer level. Um, yeah. But I think it's also like very set piece heavy, and once you've seen the set piece, is a lot less impressive the second time. Absolutely. Um, but what it does really well is it learns the stuff from Half Life Two of like here's this really unique mechanic and very unique situation. We're gonna drive as much out of this as we can, and then you're never gonna yeah. see it again. And yeah. because of that, when the game wants to make you feel really powerful, you feel really powerful, and it feels deserved. The ending, you know, that that there's a bit at the ending, I don't, don't want to, like, spoil anything, but you get a really cool gun that you yeah. don't normally get, and, mm-hmm. like, it's like getting the crazy gravity gun at the end of Half-Life 2. It's like, cool, I'm just murdering every, like, I am unstoppable, right? And the same thing when, like, you get the really good Titan loadouts. Like, it is a game that really modulates, allowing you to feel powerful and feel overmatched basically whenever it wants you to. It's really cool. Yeah, and the, okay. the gun variety is also, like, really nice. It's like, you know, they're, the different types of shotgun have, like, different designs on their spread. There's one that's like, has a widespread, um, and then there's one that's more clustered. So, you know, you, you know, you can think about what situation you would want that in. So when it's presented to you, and you often get, like, there's not just, like, the shotgun level, the sniper level, you know. It's like, hey, here's an opportunity to use a, like, you'll see different, like, wall uh, weapon racks. It's like, hey, do you want shotgun? Do you want sniper? And you can, like, really think about, like, what your preference is. Because, uh, yeah, I can snipe all right, but I'm pretty good with the movement, so I can get in close to use that shotgun, which is more how I play games. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think all... Who needs to aim? Who needs aiming? Yeah. Never ending. Um, and like the last thing I think that's really cool about that campaign uh, is that the way that it uses its level design mm. is really, really fascinating. Uh, affecting cause aside, even if uh, there's like a, a level where you are jumping from like ship to ship in like the middle of a battle as you're flying. Yeah, that's so cool. Like 
again, it's a set piece, but what Titanfall gets about its set pieces, and the reason I think most of them work, even if some of them don't always work as well the second time around, is that it takes the thing that your character is good at, or the thing that you have in this scenario, whether that's time travel, or your ability to run on walls and do crazy jumps, or what your Titan has, and says, cool, this is all stuff you normally have access to, let us build you a really interesting environment in which to play with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. It's it's like it's like Donkey Kong Country Tropical Threes. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, the thing <laughs> I'm gonna say, and you see this with Prime as well, and we talked about it a little bit before. It's movement, right? And I think I could say this comfortably. Will, you don't like the Call of Duties of the world, so I I feel safe here. Um, Movement is so essential to a first-person shooter, especially a campaign and especially level design, when you take into account different things. So so I'm glad things like Doom Eternal, uh, you know, considers movement way more now. It's so important. But we can see with Titanfall 2 and Metroid Prime where movement reigns supreme in terms of design and feel. It's like game feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I think it's like FPS uh, game designers kind of ran into a wall where it's like, you know, you don't want the player to sit and just like camp and shoot enemies from like protective cover for the until they've eliminated them all and then they'll move forward and so they try to have that solution with like okay the enemies will infinitely respawn until the player moves to like a certain checkpoint on the map um but the issue is is that they don't give the players like fun like snappy movement to do that so moving forward through that wall of infinitely respawning enemies is just a slog it's a pain in the ass but you give me the ability to like power slide and wall run and double jump and turn invisible. Like now that's fun. That's like, I feel powerful playing Titanfall two. And I want to, I want to abuse my power on these hapless normies. (laughs) And I think, um, I'm glad we're seeing kind of a return to that style. Like I'm old, right? So like I grew up playing quake and tribes and stuff like that and so movement to me is like something that's so fundamentally and even in halo right like bunny hopping circle strafing like using movement is so ingrained into what i think an fps should be and it's nice that we're seeing like even if titanfall 2 probably never gets a sequel like the new wolfenstein games doom eternal like going back to that well Mm -hmm. of like your ability to move in space and have a space that accommodates your ability to move that is vertical and is multi-layered and asks you to make decisions as opposed to like, here's the flat thing. Here's some boxes. Go hide. Yeah, yeah. That's good, and yep. and we need to get back to that. So thank you, Respawn and other you know developers who are making first person shooters interesting again. Yeah, there you go. I really oh. hope this game has like a longer tail on its legacy, because. Um, you know, I, I hope arena shooters come back. Boomer shooters have kind of made a comeback in single player mm-hmm. sense, but like arenas. Last thing I played was Quake Champions, and it. If you played Quake, it's not. I don't like hero games. Like, yeah. Overwatch poisoned the well for me. So like Quake Champions was a huge letdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Can uh, arena champions break into that esports scene? Esports is dead, Murph. It's fucking rotting. I guess. I guess that is true. I, I think it depends on the genre. What What is Fortnite if not for an arena shooter with a rapidly shrinking arena? 
Oh my god. Don't insult a do not insult arena shooters with do not dare besmirch the name. Anyways, you know what's not dead? The medium of cassettes. Go on. I think you're reaching a little bit, but I'm here with you. Hey man, sometimes you just gotta go for the segue whenever you can. Uh I played cassette beasts. Um only a little bit, only a couple hours worth. It's on Xbox Game Pass, so if you're if anyone is even slightly interested in it and has Game Pass, I would recommend it. It is a Pokemon alike, uh, the, but it's also got some Persona elements to it. the The main idea is is that you're a person that's washed up on a shore of a of an unknown world where other people have washed up on shore. I'm guessing it's like a purgatory of some sort. But um, there's magical beasts running around, and you can record them and use them as... They, they function more like personas. Like, how you interact with them is Pokemon, and how they function in terms of, like, monster design is Pokemon. But in terms of how they work in a party is much more SMT persona. You become them, and you have a party that also becomes separate monsters. Oh, so um, it's and they like have a Digimon Tamers sure maybe <laughs> question mark i suppose um the thing i liked about it as of now was the music and the monster designs and they also have a fusion mechanic which sounds interesting and allows for good interconnectivity with the party members um and i also like the it's got a semi-visual novel element to it especially with the party members and how it talk and how it does storytelling the things i don't like about it are um obviously it feels it feels very indie in a bad way it feels lesser on production value especially when we get to the overworld design um it's open pretty much after you do your first few questions it's just like hey man look at your quest log talk to npcs have fun so in that way i really like it but the actual aesthetic of the overworld and movement to go back to movement here just feels very stiff in a in a way that I wish there was a little bit more polish to. Mm -hmm. I get that. But is it... Because I'm looking at the, uh, the trailer right here. Is is this something that's riding mostly on its aesthetic and production? Or do you um, think... Do you think if I, ahead. like... You would recommend this to, like... a Someone that's really into, like, a turn-based tactics rpg oh oh it, this is not this is not intellectually demanding in an okay. rpg sense no no um it, it it's i mean that's where it also cribs from pokemon in that sense <laughs> uh dear listeners i don't like pokemon anymore so i'm desperate to find a replacement in my heart um and this does not fit that although i like what it does and it does inspire hope that for for this type of game for this niche um, I like especially also the customizable elements and again, the soundtrack, the soundtrack's good, but yeah, it mostly rides off aesthetic for the most part. I'm going to keep playing it. And if I talk about it again, that means it really clicked and I found something special, but if it didn't, uh, I won't talk about it again. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So listeners stay tuned. Let's give it like three episodes. If bro doesn't bring it up again, take it off your wish list. Take it out of your it's Steam It's garbage. Party. Forget about it. It's not garbage, but you know. Yeah, don't queue it up for Game Pass. I don't know how Game Pass works. I assume there's a play queue. <laughs> oh, God. They, 
I hope they never go Netflix. You're Gamefly? Anyways, you played No Straight Roads. Yeah, speaking of games that are about music, uh, so you know uh, earlier this year when Bethesda, like, Shadow Dropped, Hi-Fi Rush. Game of the year, baby. Anyway. And, and people were like, hey, this is, this is a, a hack and slash game set to music with really expressive like animation stuff and why don't we get uh more games like this what happened to 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 dreamcast gamecube best games uh it turns out a game like that did release three years ago and it was called no straight roads and no one played it uh damn dog i like the art design the alone like just looking at it the aesthetic looks good yeah i think the problem is edm that's the issue (laughs) no no edm is the villain uh okay well so so this is from a malaysian studio but it's what which was founded by the lead combat designer of final fantasy 15 and the character artist for street fighter 5 there's some red flags there. Do the characters have banana hair? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know. I'm just getting that out of the way. So this game is really expressive and fun. Um, like the it juggles between like these really nicely done like hand animated cutscenes with these great character designs. Like the setup is that you are this rock band in this city that's powered by music. Uh, but rock is on the way out. No one does rock anymore. It's all EDM. Uh, and so you are trying to start a rock revolution and take down the five heads of EDM to uh, to, to bring the bring the power back to the people. <laughs> uh, and you do that through a series of platforming and boss fights. Uh, and each boss, again, is very interesting. Like, each one's different. Each one has a really, like, fun dynamic like element to them uh the second boss is basically like a vtuber where like like hatsune miku where all like the you're also battling like the voice artist the animator they're like doing different things like adjusting the model in real time to fight you uh kind of piloting like a it like a mecha which is just like fun it's all fun and the music's great, too, especially because you can go back to previous boss fights and unlock different remixes and versions, including, like, Christmas versions, where it's all just, like, jingle bells and stuff. But... Would you re- would you recommend the game? Yes. I recommend the game. But the actual gameplay is nothing at all to write home about. Um that's not good. So the big issue is is that it's, like, set up, like, oh, enemies attack in time to the music. Um, so that's, like, your signal of, like, when to jo- dodge and things. The issue is that you are not bound to the rhythm of the music. You can just attack and do whatever. And so it just kind of flo- uh, throws off the whole, like, rhythm game part of it. And it's just, like, this is more or less... I'm not really doing anything to the rhythm. I'm just, like, bopping along to the music, you know? Um, and so it kind of fails on that aspect. And also, the like, the actual combat is just, like light light strong strong attacks uh there's a steam review that i think sums it up best that's like this is the best double fine game not made by double fine (laughs) yeah you get those vibes which i think says a lot like i recommend it i still recommend it just know you're not getting like 
the combat fidelity of like hi-fi rush or anything you're basically playing for this really fun animated movie that has a boss rush attached to it i wonder if we're gonna cover a double fine game in the near future mm-hmm. that may also have problems with combat and we rock music <laughs> yeah uh will you played strayed lights i did no strayed lights okay so looking at this am i correct in, in assuming that this is like an ikaruga souls-like thing ikaruga souls-like thing kind of yeah um so straight lights is is uh one of the games i played at pax and has since released um indie game i think the team is maybe six to eight people um but it is kind of like sekiro meets ikaruga um in that your character can change colors red or red or blue um and you parry a lot uh it's not like Sekiro in that you can just kind of spam parries like you actually have to time these but it also has like shadow with the colossus vibes it is gorgeous artistically one of the prettiest games i think i've ever played um there is no dialogue there is no text it is entirely uh told as a story through context the characters emoting and it's set in this world where you play as this character who is is like kind of born of light and runs into his dark side and that kind of corrupts the rest of his like light siblings so he has to go out in the world and you know, help them out. So uh, they can all be corrupted by these very powerful emotions like anger or fear or whatever and become these bosses that you then have to fight. And it's it's very uh, based on not just exploring the environment, but also like fighting these very large bosses that have very elaborate attack patterns that, you know, you're constantly having to change colors to parry correctly. Um, now you can parry, you know, a blue attack if you're red, but if you're red and you parry a red attack, you get some health back, which is good because you're going to get hit and you're going to make mistakes. So it's, it's a very like simple game on its face. You don't actually attack that much. You can, but your attacks aren't great. Um, but you mostly parry and it's actually really cool. Uh, lots of great environment design. Very, very varied, very, very varied. Um, it's got forests. It's got underground caverns. It's got like kingdom hearts style like in between worlds really cool okay okay you, you said you said the magic words there yeah i think this is from so is this the only game by this studio embers i believe this is the first game that they've made it's been in, I, I i got to talk to the development team at pax they've been working on this for several years yeah because um, this is very impressive for a first like studio game especially since they're independently published yeah it, like i said the team is i think six to eight people um and oh wow you can feel, I mean, it has a couple, like, technical issues that I've run into. Like, I had a VRAM crash at one point. Um, but it feels incredible to play. Like, the movement feels great. The combat feels great. You can't just spam the parry. Like, you have to time it. Um, and you are rewarded for exploring the environment with, uh, like, little upgrades and collectibles and more story. So it's it's one of those games where it's not super long. I think you can beat the whole game in less than like seven hours, um, like five, five and a half to seven hours, depending on how much time you want to explore. Um, but it just like you get into that world and you want to stay there. And the boss fights are all very unique, very engaging. So it, it, it hits every note that it sets out to hit. And like I said, if, if you look yeah. at the art for this, it is gorgeous. 
yeah um you know when we talk about pairing i haven't played this game so i'm i'm gonna you know spin some wheels here but like to me parrying especially when it's fine-tuned um has a rhythm to it and boss fights or uh, fights in general have rhythm to it and engrossing yourself in the rhythm that's why hi-fi rush is super fun is engrossing yourself in the rhythm but like here it, it allows you to immerse yourself more and i see what you're saying regarding the boss variety and the boss spectacle like the comparison to shadow of the colossus doesn't necessarily function in the parry way it functions in the titan way it functions in the david versus goliath you are climbing a mountain and the mountain's a boss fight and that that seems super cool to me and especially with the color mechanic that also engrosses you in aesthetically as well so i totally understand your hype for this yeah i, I highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in it um you know watch the trailer uh it like i said it plays really well it's very intriguing the story is 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 really really uh is very well told you know i think people don't always understand how hard it is to tell a story without text without dialogue without anybody speaking um, but this does a really, really good job because of the way that the characters animate. And the other cool thing about Straight Lights is it's very free form. You know, you can kind of go do the bosses in any order you want once you've unlocked their little area. Uh, mm. And there's, you know, things to go do. Like, hey, there's this cool forest full of, like, these little, like, fox deer animals. You can go pet them and hang around with them. So, like, it does a good job of investing you into the world because it is something that you can interact with. And so when something bad happens to it, because one of the bosses is, you know, messing stuff up, you're like, hey, I like this place. Stop it. It does it, it, it does a good job at everything it sets out to do. And last thing, I think the thing that I'm most happy about Straight Lights for is it like the parries, parries are so overused as a game mechanic at this point. Every action yeah. game has a parry. And a lot of them, the problem is that you can kind of just spam it. Unless it's like, you know... It's too forgiving. Yeah. Parrying should be a very demanding mechanic. Yes. And Straight Lights has a fairly... You know, when people are like, oh, it's like Sekiro, it's like, no, Sekiro, you can just spam the parry. You can't do that in Straight Lights. If you just spam parries in Straight Lights, you're going to get hit by the boss and you're going to die. Um, So, forcing you to pick your spots, and it's also asking you to, to, to do a little bit more because you want a color match, right? And the boss will change colors between attacks. So if you're parrying a string, it might be like blue, blue, red, blue, red. So if you really want to get the most out of like your ability to engage with the boss, you're constantly on your feet, not only in trying to time it, but also being like, oh, shit, he changed color. I need. Yeah, that's a really good way to get the player to like actually pay attention to the boss fight rather than trying to like brute force it. You know, talking about Sekiro, there were a few fights in Sekiro that I was able to just like brute force my way through and not actually play as you were intended for Sekiro, like doing the whole parry dance. To, to talk about FromSoft in general, because FromSoft has so much emphasis on boss fights, that's not one of the reasons why I personally like them. But they do that, is there's a lot of obscuration. Uh, character animations are so important when you see a boss animation. that You're like, oh, okay. Um, I think... I don't mind when the game allows you to cheese these things, especially for newer players. It's not like Dark Souls should be impossible or, or imperceptible. I like the forgivable mechanics. But I think what would help more is more clear um, enemy attack patterns and animations. Um, 
You know what I mean? Instead of bumping everything up to super fast where I can just spam the roll. That's all. Like, just talking about Sekiro, talking about Elden Ring or Dark Souls 3. I can just spam the roll. And then whenever I feel comfortable enough, I can attack. And then that's it. Mm -hmm. That's like the entire boss. And I don't have to to engage with what's going on. Right. And and Straight Lights does a good job of making you engage with it. And I think the other thing that's really cool is it's a very readable game in terms of like, the boss is this color, this is the attack, you can see what the startup is, and it also makes sure that you don't just, like, get too complacent, because there are attacks that bosses do that are unbearable. You cannot parry them. You have to dodge. So, those situations force you to constantly be like, you know, you're in this kind of rock-paper-scissors moment, to use, a, to use a fighting game term of, like, dodge, parry, attack, dodge, parry, attack, dodge, yeah. parry, attack, what do I need to do? Um... Yeah, and that adds its own realism to it, as if you're fighting an actual opponent that makes its own choices. Instead of just uh, input, oh, I see the thing, I know what I'm supposed to do, boom, done, period. Um, Are we all ready for the variety minute? Let's do it. I think so, I think so. I said what I needed to say. I put out my vibes. <laughs> this week's Variety Minute is Zelda Handheld Games. Um, this one's pretty specific, but I like Zelda Handheld Games. Uh, what's everyone's thoughts on those? We so, can save our main thoughts of Link's Awakening for a little bit later, but generally speaking... So when we say think? Zelda Handheld these days, does that not just mean 2D Zelda? Basically anything. Yeah, yeah. post-Link to the Past is a handheld. I four swords adventure on the gamecube i guess yeah that might be the one exception i think everything else is yeah um and i mean even the even the console stuff now like my first memory playing zelda was zelda wind waker and then playing the zelda one re-release on a gbasp so even like then all 2d zelda for me has been handheld um i think it's i i think it's good for the experience because 2d zelda is much more manageable i think it's much more focused on dungeons and just a basic you know you know short play style of you pick it up you do whatever you got to do you put it down and you're not necessarily nearly as lost Mm -hmm. whereas there's a lot of cinematic elements to anything from ocarina time the skyward sword where again to call back to metro prime you could get lost or anything like that i think the other cool thing about uh, 2D Zeldas is that it allows, or handhelds, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna make a distinction, is that it allows Nintendo to really, really play with mechanics uh, in a way that 3D Zelda pre uh, Breath of the Wild didn't really do. It kind of had a formula, and even Breath of the Wild is still very like you get to your items, the items have this use, you solve the puzzle, right? Where in like yeah. 2D Zelda, you can do weird stuff. And 2D Zelda yep. as a whole is allowed to be weirder because of that, which is really cool. Yeah, well, well, the console games are for are for the big boys that want their gritty, mature Twilight Princess. Well, and you know, it's so it's so weird. Like, I think the Wii is the best example of like 
Twilight Princess was a GameCube game ported to the Wii, pretty much. And the the Wii Motion isn't is an afterthought. Skyward Sword pretty much entirely focuses on the I'm I'm getting to 2D, I promise. Or the handheld, I promise. But like that is like the only game, in my opinion, that actually focuses on the hardware ability. And even then, the the Wii motion isn't so good. Meanwhile, to contrast with the handhelds, uh the DS elements like Phantom Hourglass and uh, Spirit Tracks, I'm I'm not like super big into Spirit Tracks, but it engages you in a different way. The touch controls are especially tailored for Link's fighting and then there's also the dungeon mapping which is such an essential part to zelda typically and having you do that etrian odyssey thing of making a map is super engrossing i love it what else oh yeah there's i've, I've recently been playing the oracle of seasons and oracle of ages to prep for this and that is playing those reminds me of the shadow of Link's awakening because there's a lot of asset reuse um and I, I think I like the simplicity and I also like the interconnectivity. The nice thing about the Oracle games is, is they pride themselves on, a, and I think this is like a big handheld element, interconnectivity and an intercontinuity between games. If you play one game um, afterwards, you will play, uh, the, those elements inform your next playthrough of the other game. And there's things you can trade back and forth, such as rings. Um, the rings are like the main interconnective component. Stuff like that is really cool, really fun, and they don't do that sort of thing in uh, 3D. No, well, I mean, like if we want to get into like the individual games, like my first Zelda was Minish Cap. You know, and I, I have fond memories of that, but like my, I've, I've always said like my de facto like favorite Zelda if we're talking 2D is going to be Phantom Hourglass. I did so many playthroughs of Phantom Hourglass and, like, how it used the handheld structure. Like you said, like, riding on the uh, maps, using the touch controls. Um, I was stuck for the longest time on the bit where you have to close the DS in order to get, a, like, a stamp on the map. That's really cool. Yeah, and that was driving <laughs> me crazy. Or how it used the microphone. Like, you blew out flames and stuff. Like, really getting inventive and fun with the, um, like, system itself in a way that we don't really see from the mainline entries. Like, like Breath of the Wild didn't have to come out on the Switch the same way that phantom hourglass and spirit tracks had to come out on the ds you could not do a port of those games without losing something super intrinsic to what they are well breath of the wild is also like a twilight princess scenario because it was a wii game wii u game first mm -hmm. yes um there's like the gyro elements like the gyro elements are pretty much like the only breath of the wild thing i guess but what modern console doesn't have gyro in the controller <laughs> please kill me <laughs> um do you do you all consider breath of the wild to be a handheld game yeah that's so i i guess it gets into that question of is the switch a handheld system and i guess yeah it is i never really play it docked but that's also just it's not it's not pocket portable you know? um, I I had a conversation once about um, and Will you can chime in I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this tidy here. Um, design changed, especially when we look at other systems like the Steam Deck, where it's like Steam Deck is not playing handheld games. It is playing normal fucking games, and it's just handheld. I think Nintendo has a little bit better approach to that. Um, but even then, I think there's a huge design philosophy shift where Breath of the Wild still feels more console-like than anything that came before it. 
I'm that's basically what I was gonna say. Like Breath of the Wild feels like a successor to Twilight Princess, Wind Waker, Majora's Mask, Ocarina, Skyward Sword. However, you want to like track the history of the the larger games. Like it builds on those design philosophies. Mm-hmm. And then I mean. It's also, handheld has also been Nintendo's kind of way of, like, benchmarking how far we've come, like, technology-wise. Like, on the GBA, we had a port of Link, uh, Link to the Past. And it's like, oh my god, the yeah. power of a SNES and a handheld. And then 3DS comes out, and they're like, boom, remake of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Which, to me, still kind of just feel like flexes. To be like, yeah, we can put these two iconic N64 games on a handheld and update the visuals and gameplay. Yeah, putting the best Zelda uh, on a handheld, one some some might say. Yeah, yeah I know that Ocarina. Um, and- I, I'm talking about Majora's Mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I figure. I uh, figure. Uh, <laughs> um, I was going to say, this is also, I think someone said it earlier, it's like, this is also where they experiment. Like, mechanically. Like, for instance, I think there was a large drought once Ocarina of Time hit, where it's like, this is what Zelda games are going to be now. And Link Between Worlds is actually the first game that sort of subverted that concept. And I was like, well, what if we make items universal? And they used the they used a rental currency system to still have some limitations, but then it opens everything else up. And in that way, that was the first time in a long time um, where they where they were a little bit more freeform and they took risks. And I think it paid off. And I think immediately after that success, they felt confident in what they could do with Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Breath of the Wild is 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 very handheld in kind of the way that it's like, hey, you know, your items that normally you get in a dungeon. No, 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 no. You have these things all the time. This is your toolkit. Yeah, and also yep. Breath of the, the Wild has that, like, pick-up-and-play factor that's very integral yep. to handheld. Like, you know, I can pick up Breath of the Wild and play for 10, 15 minutes, and I can say I have done something in the game when I have put it down. Uh, yeah, especially, like, I think that's one of the primary... Like, I, a lot of people complain about the dungeons. That's like a whole can of worms. But shrines function in that handheld sort of way where it's like 10, 15 minute, like, Oh, you can complete this dungeon segment where there is a puzzle and it's a flexible puzzle where you engage with the system. However you want, many of them are a little too easy, but other than that, like it, it showcases that handheld thought process and design at the very least. I guess my overall question now is, is like, you know, do it kind of hinges on the idea that the switch is like the future of nintendo's like consoles like do you think they're just going to come out with like a switch 2 i mean or are they going to go back to a home console handheld split if you look at nintendo historically post like snes their biggest success has been handhelds mm-hmm. aside from the wii which is a once in a you know it's not replicable yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But if I think if you look at consoles, I think the Switch is number three all time, and there's a very good chance it becomes number two. Yeah. So yeah. I think if it's Nintendo, you'd have to look at that and say, all right, we, we have the golden goose here. We have hardware that isn't expensive to make, keeps our development costs down, plays to our strengths as, hey, you can take this anywhere and play it. Also, you can hook it up to your TV, 
And it sells. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you look so, at that and be um, like, let me do something else? <laughs> so I guess my question is hinging on that idea. Do you think we're going to get another, a new 2D Zelda? Because we got the Link's Awakening remake, but that's not new. That's a remake. Yeah, I, I think they will. Because Zelda has always been... Not always, but for a very long time has, has been kind of like big event, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember, but like, do you remember when they showed Twilight Princess at E3 that year? And yeah. just the... the An explosion. The room erupted. Zelda games are an event. Um, yeah. In, in a way that very few things in the AAA space still are, where like a Zelda game comes out and people sit up, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. Zelda. Yeah. It has the the cultural cachet where people pay attention. But also, Nintendo is very fond of experimenting. Like, mm-hmm. if they weren't, we'd have another F-Zero by now. But uh, <laughs> they love to experiment. They love to do smaller, weirder projects. And I don't think they're going to stop doing that. Because yeah, Sky, you know, uh, not Skyward Sword, um, Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom, right? The, the, those games, you know, Breath of the Wild sold like 30 million copies. It did Mario Kart numbers. Um, Tears of the Kingdom is going to do crazy numbers. It's going to, you know, do really well. But because of what is expected of a traditional 3D Zelda game, like, there's stuff you can't do. The 2D games don't have any expectations because they've been doing weird stuff for so long. And I think there's always going to be that little part of Nintendo that's like, we want to do weird. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think there's one distinction I would make. And this is just, this is even not even in reality. It's a prediction by me. Um, that, and I said this last episode when we were hyping up summer games is that I think it is absolutely necessary for Nintendo to have that duality of like a, this is the big event mainline Zelda title. And then we're going to do smaller stuff on the back end. But I think a lot of people miss and are, especially if you look on Twitter, I'm brain dead on Twitter, um, (laughs) where they miss the old OOT Majora's Mask, Skyward Sword, Twilight Princess style of linear dungeons, but I don't think that matches the ambition and scope of those larger Zelda projects. Now, I have the feeling that they are going to make those, I don't want, it's hard to say smaller scale, but I think they're going to approach those 3Ds in a similar way to the 2Ds, and those may be more lumped together in a sort of experimental linear sense. They, what I'm trying to say is they're not going to make Ubisoft Tower Breath of the Wild titles all the time, but I do think that is the future uh, currently of, you know, Zelda going forward, and then the side titles will probably incorporate those uh, older 3D formulas. You know, I want to say that you're right, but if I've learned anything after playing Nintendo games for like 20 plus years, it's that whatever you think that they're going to do, you're probably wrong. Oh. Yeah, 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 Nintendo it, is insane. Like, yeah. It makes no sense. God bless them for it, because like the fact that they are just like, we're going to do whatever we want has resulted in the stuff that they've made, and sometimes it doesn't work, but a lot of the time it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, if I'm wrong and they make bangers, I'm I'm not mad. I just want bangers. I'm pro banger games. You know what I'm saying? You're pro good it, games. Is that I, I the think, statement of the podcast? Yeah, yeah we, we like yeah. good games. Yeah. Uh, speaking of good games, have y'all played this one? I don't remember what it's called. I think it's called Link's Awakening. I have played Tingle's freshly picked Rosie Rupee Land. 
That hey man, That's don't the best team handheld. Me. Rosie Zelda. Rosie Ruby Land is a fucking banger, dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Let me read this little bit and then I'll I'll pass it to you. But I, uh, will. But I gotta I gotta do the intro. This week's Game of the Week is The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, released in 1993 for the Game Boy and eventually re-released on the Game Boy Color in 1998. Originally an unsanctioned side project utilizing a Game Boy development kit, it evolved from a port of A Link to the Past into its own unique game. The gameplay, since it is a mostly top-down Link to the Past esque adventure with an interchangeable inventory mapped to your a and b buttons the story is after the events of a link to the past link finds himself in the midst of a vicious storm on an open ocean he faints and awakens on koholint island a mysterious isolated location with a small number of villagers mostly marin and her father Terran. Link's mission is to find eight instruments and play a song to awaken the mysterious egg sitting on top of the island. But what does waking the windfish actually mean? And what will become of our adventure here? Will, what did you think of this game? So I had to go back and I, I played uh, the DX version of the game because I haven't played Link's Awakening in, in a long time. Um, and my opinion of it, having gone through it again, it remains the exact same as when I played it the first time and in the years since. This is the best 2D Zelda. Uh, it is the best 2D Zelda because the, of the way it was made. It starts off as an unsanctioned side project, and so it was allowed to be weird. And if you like Majora's Mask, Link's Awakening is Majora's Mask before Majora's Mask was Majora's Mask. They are, I agree with that. They are cut from the same idea of, hey, we just made this genre-defining thing. What if we made this weird little follow-up? Yeah. With the same character in a completely different setting where everything is kind of the same, but also kind of weird and not the same. Yep. And and instead of taking like typically a normal Zelda is like a very mythology bend to it. Um, and obviously there's elements of that here. But Bajora's Mask and Link's Awakening both scratch a psychological personal element to it so the story ends up impacting you way more from majora's mask it's obviously got the dark death elements but there is a darkness to um link spoiler alert the wind fish is dreaming when you wake him up the island goes away i spoiled it there we go wait that's um, what happened <laughs> um, i thought that was up to interpretation and, <laughs> and uh I don't know. I think I think those those risks pay off really well here. I personally like Link's Awakening more than Majora's Mask, um, especially in terms of the actual nitty gritty gameplay. I think what I really like about this is the overworld. The overworld is tight, and even when there is a, a tile that doesn't have a lot of uh, utility, it has a lot of utility in space, and it's not th there's not a lot wasted. And then especially in terms of like 
the story of like you know the format of you do something and then you go to a dungeon it's all very streamlined and it's very smart about pacing and then the dungeons themselves are great like all of them mm. so hey mm-hmm. universally and it, it you know what i had forgotten about that i love upon revisiting this there's goombas and like <laughs> <laughs> and piranha plants a lot of shit there there's yeah. like this this game is I said this in a, in a, I was talking to some friends earlier and we were talking about like, what are the greatest Zelda games? And I said, look, I have opinions on what the greatest Zelda games are, but what I need from Tears of the Kingdom is I need this game to be as unhinged and weird as Link's Awakening and Majora's Mask are because it's happened twice where you make the genre defining game, right? And then it's like, this is just a weird little guy. Have fun. I need, I, I need the weird little guy. Um, I don't know if Tears of the Kingdom is going <laughs> to do that, but God, but Link's Awakening is so weird. And I do think, you know, you could argue like, yeah, the windfish wakes up and the island goes away. But I think you could also argue that like, there's a certain amount of truth to what happens on the island. And yeah, with those characters. Absolutely. And I think that's really cool. And also, you know, the cool thing about Link's Awakening is it's really the first game that kind of just like looks at Zelda mythology and just throws it out the window. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What, what, what's more important is what's going on in the here and now. That's the that's the one thing. It's like in a release terms, Zelda one, Zelda two, and a link to the past came before this. And you know, props to Zelda two, I suppose that has probably the most characterization out of all of them, or maybe a link to the past. But Link's Awakening, you actually care about a large majority of the NPCs, and a large majority of the NPCs are memorable. And in terms of the ending, bookmark it, because I want to talk about the ending near the end. Um, But yeah, I just love every bit of it. Like the script and the story in terms of what's going on and the talking and the charm hits way better. The sprite work. I love the sprite work to this game. Um, I I typically play the black and white monochrome version. um, And to me, that sprite work just evokes something really powerful. But even then, the DX version has really good uh enemy sprite coloring i like playing the bottle dungeon in dx seeing like the clown genie that fucking looks fantastic mm-hmm. and it's i was i was talking to my wife uh because i was i was playing some of it today and, and last night and uh i was sitting there and i was like this is a game boy game yeah. this game looks <laughs> fantastic like this game like in terms of art direction i would rather look at this than most modern games i'm just sitting here like this thing like runs on a device that has trouble remembering what you did from screen to screen. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. how? What, what what wizardry was employed here? I, I don't understand it. I think the strength of it comes from like you know the hardware limitation itself. It's like okay, you can't get you know it. I played this on the uh, the Switch Virtual Console thing. But if, if thinking about it in terms of like the size of the screen of an original Game Boy, like you can't get anything that's like that zoomed out the level it is in uh, Link to the Past. So you have to have these very yeah. small, tight, purposeful environments that don't have that many enemies on it. You know, I yep. famously on this podcast, I was not too hot on uh, Link to the Past on account of just having. 20 different damage sources at any time on the screen but here there's like only 
two or three enemies at a time. So every screen is very manageable. It's almost like, you know, okay, here's what I do in on this screen. Here's what I do on this screen. There's nothing that really needs to... Your eyeballs aren't spinning around trying to keep track of, like, 20 different things that you need to keep an eye on. And but there is, but there is still a good element of discretion on the player, especially in the older titles. I played back to back this time around the DX and the uh, remake on Switch, and the remake on Switch rehauls the inventory system, and I sort of missed it um, because the inventory system is like when you walk into a room, and yeah, there's about two or three enemies tops. Um, and those enemies have their own thing to them. They're all manageable. But because of your inventory, you basically have to switch whatever you need from mm -hmm. your B and your A buttons. And that still demands a choice from the player. And to me, that is where difficulty can arise even when they downsize. Mm -hmm. I, and the the switch remake also has it does it's not screen by screen i assume it's like scrolling. no it's super wide yeah for the most yeah part, and that yeah. sort of i feel like would hamper the experience because you know again these these environments are designed to be looked at screen by screen it's all it's a grid yeah. well they still do the dungeons largely like that there's some exceptions within the dungeons um especially and i think there are some times where it kind of helps do you guys remember in fucking uh eagle tower i love eagle tower as a fucking dungeon that shit is awesome but um especially the verticality but like there's like wide open rooms that you still go square by square in that sense the remake helps a lot in those ways but even then yeah i don't know how i feel about the remake especially in the overworld where there's frame drops and weird periphery things yeah i don't know man something about the original game boy version is what's magic you know yeah i, I think you know link's awakening is going back to something that we brought up earlier the best games are puzzle boxes right link's awakening is however many tiles there are that number of puzzles mm -hmm. and it's yeah. the limitation what you guys have talked about you know the great games are not built because somebody had infinite time and infinite money and infinitely powerful hardware they're built because people had to make compromises and because of that they had to make choices that fit what the game wants to do every great piece of art has been made under the stress of limitations and link's awakening works because the limitation is a game boy you only have two buttons which yep. makes the player make interesting decisions. I can't have my sword and my shield at the same time and another item. I have to choose. Yep. So if I want yep. my sword and I want my rock feather so I can jump around, I don't have a shield. Yeah. I can get hit. So you're constantly navigating this idea of what do I need in this moment? What risks am I willing to take? What is the best way to solve the problem in front of me, realizing that when I go to the next screen, when I enter the next stage of the puzzle box, that may no longer be true. And every item has a very, like, distinct purpose, even outside and value. of value, everything. I still use the items you get at the start. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't necessarily know that about fucking A Link to the Past, but here I'm like, that fucking magic powder bag, yeah, baby, let's keep fucking using that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and then it also you know it's all it has that sort of like metroidvania progression but in very like distinct clear ways here here's a hole in the over map come back to it when you have the rocks feather here's multiple holes on the over map come back when you have the rocks feather and the pegasus boots so you can do a running uh jump you know 
and just and to be fair a link to the past does that as well but here i think it just pays off better yeah because the the map is overall much smaller yeah more focused the you know the thing about puzzle boxes and i'm not anti space or scope but the thing about puzzle boxes is the tighter and more focused they are the more satisfying they can be you know what i mean and that's where links awakening really shines even you know most of the time i actually complain about overworld puzzles um like the trading quest in general if that was in any other zelda game it's a very adventure game-esque element yeah i would probably hate it but in here the map is so small and there's only a finite number of npcs that i am very vividly aware of what everybody wants so the trading side quest makes complete sense yeah and it's also just like you know talking about how theming can really help mundane gameplay elements like liven up you know it's not it's not just a trading quest you got to give a can of dog food to an alligator so he gives you a banana that you can give it to a monkey so he gives you a stick that you can give to a guy so he can poke a beehive for reasons you know the other thing that i think i really admire about it is that there's no wrong answers um zelda especially like post ocarina ocarina has very much like this is the right answer and that level of design kind of carried over to later games where like this is this enemy you use this item this is this puzzle you use this thing and there is that in link's awakening but a lot of the time if you're in a screen how you want to approach the screen is up to you Uh, the boss designs aren't that very like you know the item you get in the dungeon is to be used on the boss but it's not a circumstance where like the boss does like five attacks and then he opens his one eye and you're supposed to shoot the eye with (laughs) the bow you know it's like it's very much like a give and take the boss takes multiple hits to bring down i really like the uh grappling hook boss in that aspect where he pokes out of the different walls and you gotta like bring out his tongue and then you gotta hit the tongue and like oh it's just like super involved and he's fast like it, it takes really fast reaction time instead of very slow uh, deliberate animations which would typically be found in a 3d game but that's also you know? a boss where you can use the rock's feather to help like jump over his tail yeah and you know so like molt items you know continue to have use past the dungeon that they're introduced in yes link's awakening has that spe- like the game boy games especially like that extra mobility of the jump giving him a jump allows for a lot more deft maneuvering you know what I mean? You can jump over enemies. Jump over enemies or jump over, like, the final, final nightmare boss has tentacles that bring back, like, on a rhythm, on a rhythmic basis. Rock's Feather is perfect for that, and it gets into a, such a nice groove. I fucking love it. Yeah. And, you know, I think this speaks to what you can do in a 2D environment, right? Because the stuff in 3D tends to be more exaggerated and slower and more recognizable because the player is navigating in 3D. Yeah. yeah. Right? They the player have has to, to aim. The player has to aim. The player has to go into the bow, look at the thing, right? Like, it's a much more involved process, so what you are being asked to do generally isn't as complex because it takes longer and it requires more stuff. Whereas in a 2D environment, you can have a much faster, more Twitch-based thing because, hey, your options are inherently more limited. You can go up, down, left, or right. And in the same way, 
the enemy is also limited. It cannot really go above you. And if it does, you can jump, right? It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So using that limitation to make the items work in a way where it's like, oh, okay, I see this. I have this option. He has this option. And I can play around these things using the tools that I have without having to slow down and think about like, all right, I got I to gotta shoot the eye now. I love the eye as an example, so I'm just going to keep using it. No, no, it's all good. I completely agree. This is good stuff. Um, it goes back to the dreamlike imagery, the heavy usage of... The thing that always gets me is not the Goombas or the Piranha Plants or the Wart or the Princess Peach photograph. It's literally the Kirby in uh, fucking Bird Tower. Tower. The Bird Tower is just in general, like fucking wild to me. And to talk about like multiple ways to solve a problem, you have to carry that giant ball to crash multiple pillars. There's different ways to move that ball around. And I love that usage of space, especially when you when you crush an entire floor down. I could just go on and on about Bird Tower all the whole time. And especially when you actually fight the boss, the bosses here are so involved in that 2D sense. There's multiple ways to hit him. And, uh, but it still requires a uh, really great reaction time. And so everything will already said. So I just love it. Yes. And you know, what always gets me the, the, the thing that really sends me as far as like the dreamlike nature and the dreamlike logic of it. There's a guy, I forget what house he's in, bro. Maybe you know this, um, where you have to do something for his wife. And later on, he's like, yeah, I'm going to get lost later. So be sure to help yeah. me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I know exactly what you're talking about i'm pretty sure that's the uh that's the, isn't that the dad of like the multiple children in the village yeah and then he gets lost in yeah and and he's part of the trading side quest when he's up in the thing he wants not the hub he wants the pineapple yeah yeah you, you find him and he's like oh i got lost just like i said i would <laughs> can you get me some food and like you know he doesn't want like any of the other he doesn't want the dog food he doesn't want the bananas he wants the pineapple. Uh, it says so much where these NPCs, these fucking faceless NPCs, or nameless NPCs, still have like a lot of fucking impact and memorability. And they communicate a lot to you. The remake tries to communicate a lot to you already. But I think the puzzles in the overworld, again, I hate, dude, I typically hate Zelda overworld puzzles a lot to the lead up to the dungeon because they're either very orchestrated or not. But like, for instance, when you get Marin and you have to take her to the animal village, it all makes sense. All, all of that makes complete sense. It's not super demanding, but you still want to take your time with it, especially as a character. Marin is like the one character like you actually identify with and want to spend time with. So when you spend time with her, you especially in the DX version, you get multiple scenes of spending time with her. So you just absorb it as much as possible or the chain chomp or the little ghost, everything just makes sense. And I think, you know, bro, you've mentioned this, but I want to reiterate it because I think it's, it's true. Like, and this is the same thing when I talk about Link's Awakening being like Majora's Mask, like the thing about Majora's Mask. And I I say this because I think more people have probably played it than Link's Awakening at this point. is like, you're yeah. so involved in this world and this world is so small that you care about everybody because you intimately know them. Yeah. And yep. in the same way, Link's Awakening is so small and so intimate and so... It's like living in a small town. Yep. You know everybody and everybody, you know, goes to the theater on Saturday and you know everything. And so you're like, there's a sense of, of intimacy in scale 
that allows you, even with limited characterization and the limited hardware of the Game Boy and the limited, 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 where you can be like, I get it. I understand. Yep. I, I want to spend time in this place with these people. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I guess this is the time to say my interpretation of the ending, because this is a really good way to synergize with what you just said, is I think what matters most is memories, right? Even the Windfish says this, where it's like what you spend time with and the things you identify with, that's art in general. That's experience in general. And in that small town sense, you also need to grow up and put it down eventually. But even though Koholint goes away, it's never really gone because it's stuck with you emotionally and it matters. It mattered to you, the player, and it mattered to Link. And it says so much in like the secret ending where Marin uh, becomes a seagull and flies away. It says so much about the world the world being able to have a life of its own and being able to succeed on its dreams too. It's just super heartwarming and it super works even though there's a dark, grounded reality to it. And, yeah. you know, bro, you said this before we started talking, when we started talking about this podcast, the idea of like whether something is real doesn't really matter. Like what well, matters of course it's is... not real. It's a video game. Right. But, but yep. the idea of like perceived reality, right? Like we worry about yeah. reality yep. and like whether things are true a lot and is it canon right is it canon <laughs> did it happen um yeah you know, t- talk to the star wars fans about canon for about five minutes you want to rip your eyeballs out uh yeah that shit's dumb it is dumb but people care about it and so yeah this idea that like you know was it real does it matter you had a response to yeah. it and and yep. you know what even do we judge as reality because we're all going to perceive it differently, right? You, you show five different people, five different, or the same scenario, you're going to get five different stories about what happened. And so I think Link's Awakening, like, fundamentally understands that it's not necessarily whether what was real or what actually happened, but our perception of it and the effects that it has on us afterwards. Yep. 100%. And that, that, it resonates well. This is definitely the most emotional Zelda game I play. That's probably why I hold it in like a really high regard. Cause it's one thing to just like conquer a demon and get the princess. It's another thing to emotionally grapple with these things and grow from it. You know what I mean? It is the nature of dreams to end, but you'll always carry it with you. Well, and like because, that's a much more visceral journey. Well, because it actually gets you like, you know, it's one of those games that actually gets, like, the plot is told via you playing it. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, it kind of takes advantage of the fact that you, the player, need content to do. So you are going to march towards the end no matter what. So the entire time you are being told by these, like, nightmares, like, do you even know what this island is? Once you wake the windfish, it's all gone. These people you know, they will be gone. But you are, Link, you are still moving forward. And that's like the tragedy of it. You need something to do. So you're going to end the dream. And that's like, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> I, 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 it's kind of like a mist in that way. You know, both games set in this very dreamlike island environment where it's like, you know, you, the player, need something to do. You might as well, in Miss, it's like, you might as well follow the directions of these two shady guys trapped in books, just so you have something to do, just so you have someone to talk to and figure out what's going on. It's yeah. Link's it's Awakening. It's a very natural sense of reward. 
Yeah. Link's Awakening is the Spec Ops the line of the Zelda franchise. <laughs> okay, I see it. Sure. <laughs> I guess, uh-huh. but I also feel like I just had a small stroke, so... Like... <laughs> <laughs> that was a statement. That was one of the most statements I've ever heard. Yeah, I guess I see it, and I love both those games, but that's going to take a minute for me to, to emotionally That was digest. a Mr. Fantastic stretch. That came up to me know. earlier this morning. I was like, oh, I got to put this down. Remember when I said I was doing notes? I just wrote that down. You remember that scene in Space Jam where Michael Jordan stretches across half the basketball court? I think yours was a little bit longer than that. Uh, um, is the, thing I really is like... the island being a dream... Like, did you guys know that the first time playing? Like, is that a twist? Is that a reveal to you? Um, I think that the game... Because when is that actually, like, outright stated? It's by, like, the fourth dungeon, right? Yeah, it's it's fairly deep into the game, but I think the game teases it very heavily early on. Yeah. Where, like, this looks like this character from X or like there's the dream shrine where you can go and sleep and like this crazy stuff happens. Right. So like, yep. The game like teases and pokes it at you and the owl hints at it several times Um, where, and even the idea of waking the windfish, right? Like what is so important that the windfish has to be awake? Why can't I just get on a boat? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or the very idea of nightmares, the literally the word nightmares. It's and, like bad things are entering the dream. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, your goal is is kind of to set the dream right, and then because you've done that, the dream ends. Um, Yep. So, like, it's very heavily implied, so I don't know if I was surprised by it, but I think it's really interesting to, to, like, it was all a dream, right? It's one of the most cliched things you can do in fiction. Mm -hmm. And Link's Awakening Mm -hmm. actually does it in a way that it makes sense and feels correct. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Well, because it changes like the back half of the game like the tone nothing's changed in like the music or the presentation but you the player just feel like you're carrying this weight and guilt with you um one of the things like i noticed for the first time like towards like the last two dungeons if you go back to the town and like talk to the kids there and they're like what what do you mean how when did we start living on this island we've always been here yeah like what the hell's an outside And, like, it all yep. starts, uh, like, are... you know, like, you start realizing, like, oh, no, it's all, like, it's true. This place ain't real, <laughs> quote, unquote. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, like, I think what what's special, especially now in 2023, and even further as we go on and fucking, hopefully they keep making Zelda games even after we die, um, at least good ones, um, is is that the Zelda franchise rewards continuity in like that myth sense of like, oh, this is evolving. This feels like it's not necessarily going towards something, but it feels like it's always moving and it rewards the previous playthroughs. But like in Majora's Mask and Link's Awakening, because they're dreams and psychological rather than myth-based, um, for instance, like the first thing you do when you wake up in Link's Awakening is you see Marin. Will said this earlier. Marin looks exactly like Zelda. You mistake her for Zelda. So it's like little elements like that that are meant to blend in. And it's like, yeah, what does that fucking mean? It It's just one of those things where it's like memory is what matters. And Link's, you know, subconscious or whatever is blending into the actual game design. And it reflects Link as a character. I think that's super cool. 
Like, and you wouldn't pick yeah. that up if this was your only game. I think, I don't know, like, how hot a take this will be. Probably not. But, like, the the Zelda games that are actual sequels to existing Zelda games are always the ones that are the most interesting conceptually. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because, like, like the Zelda timeline is, like, a whole quagmire thing, but it's, like, every new, new entry is meant to be iterative as a point. Like, it's all cycles. It's the, it, you know, you got the Triforce, Courage, Wisdom, Power. It's Zelda, Link, and Ganondorf locked in endless combat forever. But what does Link do after Ganondorf is defeated? What happens to the hero after that is always much more interesting when it comes to Zelda for me. I agree, yep. and I think I actually like said the same thing to my wife when I was prepping for this podcast. Um, like, yeah. cra- crazily enough, like that's Zelda is at its most narratively interesting when the threat is not world-ending. Yeah, yeah, and that only happens after you do the big, like, the big thing, right? The big fight, and then and then what's really cool <laughs> is Zelda has a couple times now actually sat down and said okay you won that one uh well and link's awakening and majora's mask both have to deal with endings you know what i mean both of them majora's mask especially where it's like well link became a kid again but he can't actually become a kid again he's been through too much trauma has taken over and um for link's awakening it's a very similar thing where it's like the aftermath has a dark reality to it where it's like yeah it's time for growing up yeah you know what i mean majora's mask specifically asked the question of like you know who are you the story of majora's mask is really sad because all link wants to do is find his friend and he gets drawn Mm -hmm. into this conflict that that is really fundamentally about like what we do when our friends leave us Mm -hmm. um yep and link's awakening is very like you know kind of trying to grapple with the fact of like what do you do after you accomplish the big thing? Like what, what, you know, you've, you've been at this thing for so long and it's defined so much of your life. What do you do after? Who are you after? And yeah, what do you take away from it? And do those experiences matter? Mm -hmm. Like these are very complicated philosophical questions. Um, Not to maybe give the Zelda narrative more respect than it deserves, but like, this stuff is not easy, and most games, games especially, are really bad at asking you to sit with a character after they win. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a that's really cool thing. Mm-hmm. And then even after Link's Awakening, Link went on uh, two more parallel adventures. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, even those are interesting. They're less, they're less impactful. Again, I just think, like, playing them, it's very much that Resident Evil 4 thing of, like, this is the shadow of Link's Awakening. And in general, there is a shadow, like, after Link's Awakening for handhelds. Like, this defined uh, what the handheld Link experience... Even Phantom Hourglass is basically a fucking Link's Awakening (laughs) game. Yeah. Well, not even, like, the handheld 2D games. Like, I feel way much, like, more influence from Link's Awakening on Ocarina of Time than Link to the Past does. I can see that. Because of how, you know, how it's set up, how it gets you to engage with the world, the characters. Um, You know, I said in the Link to the Past episode, that's like, to me, like, a Zelda dungeon is prefaced by, like, a story, like, bookmark uh, or bookends. 
you know, Dodongo Caverns and Ocarina of Time is bookmarked by you coming to the Goron Village, finding out they, like, are starving because they can't go into the mines, and the conclusion is that you reopen the mines to them. Like, that little narrative, that little episode, uh, seems so integral to me to, like, Zelda storytelling, and I feel that's influenced so much more here in Link's Awakening than I did in Link's to the Past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... This may be the only time I'll be able to fit it in because I didn't mention it earlier. Um, I like the the pacing of it, especially the back half. Back half of Zelda can be such a hit or miss. Wind Waker. Where, yeah. Yeah, where sometimes I'm like, yo, can we fucking wrap this up, <laughs> dude? Um, here is the exact opposite where it's what Murph was saying earlier is where you're being pushed because it's like, okay, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. There's a momentum to it and it doesn't ask especially when you get near the end, it doesn't ask you to take a breath. The last time you take a breath pretty much is, is that Marin segment. And then after that, it's like, okay, this is it, it, boom, boom, boom. It's all coming apart. It's all coming apart. And then most of your time is spent in dungeon. The dungeons become much more complicated and the, and the overworld becomes much smaller. It's such a shift. It's like a paradigm shift about uh, two quarters of the way through. It's, it's pretty cool. And it's a great example of the design of the mirroring the narrative. Mm -hmm. yep. As opposed to just wow. like, it, it, to, to, to go to my Wind Waker point, like Wind Waker is a great game, but especially in the original release, you get to the end and you're like, cool, I'm ready to fight Gandorf. Let's do this. And the game's like, what if you got these Do you have 13 fragments? maps? Yeah, that's like 30 million rupees. Bro, I don't want to find these. Stuff. Well, too bad you can't finish the game. And it's like, bro, you, you cannot, you cannot build me up to the point of like, stuff is going down and then be like no 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 you need to go to the dmv <laughs> well let me know how you feel about the end of metroid prime uh i'm actually fairly lucky in that i've been getting the artifacts as i go oh, son of but a if bitch. i had oh, there you go. i would feel the same way that's the inner guide writer in you isn't uh, it? yeah yeah, yeah. You know, I know we've been talking about, like, narrative and themes. I want to, like, roll back to gameplay real quick. I want to say th all the dungeons in this game slap. These are some of my favorite yeah, Zelda dude. dungeons. Save maybe the face dungeon. <laughs> uh, that one I was pretty lost and turned around in. Uh, but, like, the yeah. theming here is not, like, you know, it, it's a Zelda game. You have You have fire dungeon. You have ice dungeon. You have shadow dungeon. You have fire dungeon 2.0. But here it's like, no, here's the dungeon that's all about keys. Here's the slime dungeon. Yep. Here's the color dungeon. Those are mechanic dungeons. Yeah. That's what it's focused on. And, like, the color one, like, in, like you'd think it would be an afterthought, like, oh, like a fucking bullet point to sell the new edition. No, it's, it's an involved dungeon that specifically demands you look at the colors of the sprites. Yeah, new unique that's so mechanics. Cool. Crazy. Yep. In a Nintendo game? That's wild. <laughs> dog the, the one thing i never do all the way is the fucking seashells no I've, i keep never i played. always forget there's 20 you have to get and i get to like 15 and i'm like oh i get the sword now nope no well especially after the color dungeon um you choose like your tunic and i always choose double damage yeah so then it's like i do um I do always try to get all the photographs. The photographs are so cool to me. And it goes back to like the memory thing. And especially since those are black and white in the DX version. Um, and they have like that toy box art style that the re like to me, the remake is imitating the photos. Yeah. And I think that's super cool. Um, on notes on the remake. I don't know how much I like it. I think I will 
played again and i think i'm gonna keep the game but it's just the little things that like add up to where i'm like i don't know the the essential game boy experience is what's best i already said most of them ultimately it's a much easier experience um and i think it suffers for that um, there's a nice streamlining of quality of life. Again, the inventory stuff. You have your sword and your shield at all times. And you have the flippers. You have the fucking Goron bracelet. Not the Goron bracelet. The bracelet. Like, you don't have to equip those. Those are all just, like, givens. And then, like, so what you equip is, like, the minor stuff, like bombs or arrows. And you lose a lot doing that. And uh, they don't really replace it with anything other than an optional hard mode where you take double damage and there's no hearts. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, the art style is fine. The music is good. But, like, you know, I'm, I'm still mixed on it. Mm -hmm. I think if I was doing, like, a quality of life update on Link's Awakening, the only things I would really change is maybe having item selection be on, like, hold down a button and bring up, like, a weapon wheel, an item wheel. Rather than, like, pausing the game, selecting the weapon, swapping it out. Oh, see, I like pausing it. And also yeah. having dungeon maps show you where staircases are. Mm. Yes, yes. They do that, I think, yeah. I think they do that in uh, Awakening. At the very least, they for sure do that when you make your own dungeons. I'm pretty sure they still do that, period, mm -hmm. in uh, the remake. So, could get, we are continuing the thread of uh, Season 4 of Daydreamcast being uh, Murph-certified favorites set in tropical <laughs> island locations i mean hey this is hey i wish this was a vacation 2023 in real life not a vacation uh, but you know how's your year of the jrpg working out uh i dude i played fucking the three mother games and then i was like oh, dude i don't think i can keep doing it <laughs> <laughs> i'm full now marathoning them sucks but we'll see any final thoughts on link's awakening everybody it's a uh good game and i think it just goes to show that like game boy was kind of its own beast in a way we don't consider like modern handhelds you know when you say something's like a game boy game it means like a very different like art style and aesthetic in game design than just it being like a portable nes like again people don't make fucking steam deck games it's like oh this is fucking handheld yeah. no when they made a game boy game it was a game boy game you know mm -hmm. i think uh link's awakening is a perfect marriage of several things one being the use of the hardware it was on two nintendo's willingness to take risks and explore sequels to zelda in an interesting way like what happens after and Kind of the creative freedom before the, the franchise had really become what it would be defined as post-Ocarina to just experiment. And all of those things, and it's, you know, it started as an unsanctioned project. All of those things came together in kind of a once in a, in a lifetime confluence to create this game that, you know, it's a Game Boy game. It's not super complicated, but you go back to it and you just see the all the things that had to happen for it to be the way that it is. And don't go back to a lot of Game Boy games and find them to still play well and to still be memorable. And Link's Awakening is that. It's so wild to me because every time I play this, I respect it more. And there are, I could, I could probably count on one hand the types of games where it's like the more I play it, especially years after the fact, the more I 
respect it and fall in love with it so damn well thank you so much for joining us will um tell go ahead and plug everything you've got going on uh you can find me on twitter at by that's burger with an o and none of you um and uh what am i doing right now uh i'm actually writing a review for tears of the kingdom when that game comes out for game skinny uh the most recent thing i did for ign was a preview of aliens dark descent from pax it's really cool you should check it out um otherwise just you know follow me on twitter keep up with me chat with me talk to me about zelda man dude yeah clearly we can fucking talk about that shit all day man (laughs) thank you so much murph what do we have going on oh we we have things going on in the crevices of the schedule never mind you just (laughs) you just lost me uh then do you know our next game yes most certainly he had no idea, dear listener. He, he, we, uh, we, this is an edit by me at the very end here. I'll be playing out shortly. But the next game we are going over is Brutal Legend, the double fine game, uh, by Tim Schafer and, uh, starring Jack Black. Um, and we will have a guest star, Brendan. You know him. Um, and, uh, I hope to see you all then. Thank you again to Will for guesting. I think this was uh, an all-timer ep, at least in my opinion. I think all of it was fantastic. Fantastic.